Which terrorists are Biden putting on notice? Foreign or domestic? And Beyonce plays her role in silencing free speech. You're listening to the Propaganda Report's Drive Time at News Blast. I'm Brad Binkley. Top story of the day. The CIA has killed al-Qaeda leader al-Zawahiri, the top most wanted terrorist in the world, according to the FBI, bin Laden's right-hand man, his former right-hand man, and a guy who I could have sworn has been killed multiple times before. I'm looking at an article here from the Brookings Institute page from November 17th of 2020. It says the death of al-Zawahiri and the future of al-Qaeda. And then it goes on to talk about how he may be dead or at least appears to be completely off the grid. And then I'm looking at another article here that says uh, Al-Qaeda is still a threat, whether nominal leader is dead or alive. So I guess the reports on all these old articles are that they think he's dead, but they're not 100% sure. I knew I saw some stuff in the past few years of him thinking that they had been killed, they, that they thought they got him. But now Biden is saying that they have killed him. And here's Biden's announcement that he does kind of slur his way through. On Saturday, at my direction, the United States successfully concluded an airstrike in Kabul, Afghanistan, that killed the Emir of Al-Qaeda, Iman al-Zawiri. You know, Zawiri was uh, bin Laden's leader. He was with him all the, the whole time. He was his number two man, his deputy at the time of the terrorist attack 9-11. He was deeply involved in the planning of 9-11. One of the most responsible for the attacks that murdered 2,977 people on American soil. For decades, he was the mastermind behind attacks against Americans, including the bombing of the USS Cole in 2000, which killed 17 American sailors and wounded dozens more. He played a key role, a key role in the bombing of U.S. embassies in Kenya and Tanzania, killing 224 and wounding over 4,500 others. He carved a trail of murder and violence against American citizens, American service members, American diplomats, and American interests. And since the United States delivered justice to bin Laden 11 years ago, Zawahiri has been a leader of al-Qaeda, the leader. From hiding, he coordinated al-Qaeda's branches and all around the world, including setting priorities for providing operational guidance that called for and inspired attacks against U.S. targets. He made videos, including the recent weeks, calling for his followers to attack the United States and our allies. Now, justice has been delivered. Justice has been delivered. Has it? I just don't know. I don't know how I feel about this because I don't know if I believe the story is true. I feel like I've heard that this guy had been killed before in the past. Maybe I misheard that. I did read those articles, the headlines of those articles from years ago, a couple of different times where they thought he was dead. Maybe he wasn't dead. Maybe they thought they got him and they didn't. I don't know. I just heard this news and I'm still processing it and figuring out how I feel, what I think about it. I'm a little surprised that COVID didn't get the guy, honestly. I mean, he was an old guy. Didn't seem like he was in that great of shape by the looks of him, by the images they show. And the guy's just apparently out on a balcony wearing no mask, mind you. And he gets hit by this drone. And more on that in a second. But Still figuring out how I feel about this. However, when Biden says stuff like he says in this clip I'm about to play you, it definitely makes you kind of, at least makes me anyway, have thoughts that you can't help but having after hearing something like this. Here's a clip, and then I'll tell you what it, what it sparks in my mind. We, we make it clear again tonight that no matter how long it takes, no matter where you hide, if you are a threat to our people, 
the United States will find you and take you out. Now, look, in normal times, I wouldn't have a problem really with a statement like that if you feel that there are certain people that are threatening you and those that you care about. However, with the January 6th committee hearings going on and with the domestic terrorism strategy that we know Biden put out where they had made domestic terrorism the top priority and they appear to be targeting that strategy towards people who don't agree with the mainstream narrative is basically how you get yourself potentially flagged to be in that category of people. It makes me wonder here if this is not just a statement that is directed towards foreign terrorists, but towards what they classify as domestic terrorists as well. And when we hear how they did it, the drone strike by the CIA, because if the CIA is investigating terrorists abroad, who's to say they can't investigate them on our surface, on our land as well. We heard some of the clips from Biden's DOD guy on the Rockfin video where he talks about the broadened powers the intelligence agencies have to investigate, quote, domestic terrorism under that new domestic terrorism strategy. So I do wonder if this has anything to do with that. I I think that they can kind of rope many issues underneath one umbrella. So obviously there's going to be other things going on here as well. And again, Still processing this story, not 100% sure how I feel about it because I just don't know that I believe it. And here's a little interesting aspect of it. It says the strike was carried out by a CIA-operated Air Force drone and that it took a couple of days to confirm the killing because we don't have that many assets on the ground. So a couple of days to confirm the killing. Did we, in fact, confirm the killing or will maybe in a couple of years we hear that this guy's been killed again? I don't know. And I should clarify my statement from a moment ago that I don't actually know whether he was wearing a mask or not. I haven't seen a photo or a video. I would assume that had he been double jabbed, double boosted and wearing a mask that the missile would have just bounced right off of him and he'd be perfectly fine. So I think it's safe to say that he must have been unmasked. Back to that point on domestic terrorism. We have another story in the news today from ABC News that poses the question, who should be labeled a terrorist? January 6th sentencing fuels the debate. All right, here's what happened. A federal judge yesterday sentenced the first Capitol rioter to be convicted at trial, as opposed to taking a plea deal, to 87 months in prison. That's over seven years for his role in the January 6th incident at the Capitol. This is the largest term doled out yet. Perhaps a little intimidation there for those considering not taking a plea deal. Certainly wouldn't put it past the federal government, to do something like that. There's no doubt about that. So here's what he was convicted of. He was actually convicted at trial back in March when a jury found him guilty on five counts, two counts of civil disorder, and one count each of obstruction of an official proceeding, entering and remaining on restricted grounds with a firearm and obstruction of justice. So for that, he got over seven years in prison. The federal prosecutor had actually asked for 15 years in prison and also asked the district court judge to apply a terrorism enhancement, which would define under law that the man's actions amounted to domestic terrorism. The U.S. attorney, Jeffrey Nessler, said that we do believe that what he was doing on that day was domestic terrorism, and we do believe that he is a domestic terrorist. The judge fortunately turned down that request, saying that there have been multiple other defendants from the January 6th incident. Well, they didn't say incident. The article says attack, where the DOJ chose not to pursue the terrorism enhancement, despite their conduct appearing to be much more serious and threatening than what Rafet was convicted of at trial. 
Of course, they probably took a plea deal, if I had to guess, because this is the first person convicted who actually went to trial. So, yes, they must have taken a plea deal. Rafet's attorney argued that the DOJ was unfairly seeking to make an example of Rafet simply because he took his case to trial. Obviously, that's what they were doing, of course. His attorney was also shocked by the prosecution's recommendation since his client wasn't accused of assaulting any police officers on that day. The prosecutors in the case, they tried to cast him as a ringleader of the three percenters and as one of the leaders of the first waves of the group that, quote, breached the Capitol. And they showed videos of him climbing that banister where the scaffolding is. We've all seen those images. And another video presented showed him gesturing to the crowd behind him in what appeared to be an attempt to get them to move up the stairs towards multiple entryways that led into the building. At one point during the trial, the prosecutors played first-person footage that Rafet had recorded with a 360-degree camera mounted on his helmet while in the crowd at the Save America rally prior to the attack, where apparently he said, we're taking the Capitol before the day is out. Everybody is in the same harmony on that, dragging them out, effing, kicking, and screaming. He said he didn't come to play games in the video. He just wants to see Pelosi's head hit every effing stare on the way out. I think we have the numbers to make it happen without firing a single shot. Okay, so this guy's an idiot. People need to stop Hunter Bidening themselves, filming themselves, doing incriminating activity that could be used against them. At any point in time, does this guy stop and think, hey, maybe I shouldn't be shouting these things about Pelosi while I have a camera on my head to capture it all. Maybe it might be evidence used against me. Of course he didn't. Otherwise, he wouldn't have done it. This was a jury trial, so that video of him yelling those things about Pelosi is probably what got him convicted. Oh, and he apparently has a son who's in a rebellious stage because his son is the one who alerted the FBI to him, which has caused conflict between his daughters and his son. His daughters did not want the police called on him. But this guy is obviously not a very smart person, and he is unfortunately going to be be made an example of here because he took this case to trial instead of making a plea deal. His son also testified against him, as did another three percenter who did take a deal. And as for the domestic terrorism aspect of it, former national security official from the Justice Department, Jordan Strauss, he pointed out that the fact that the government went after the terrorist enhancement against this guy, that it could mark a shift in its handling of the January 6th-related cases, and it could foreshadow a more aggressive approach. He said the case is noteworthy and that it may reflect a policy change for January 6th cases moving forward. We should expect to see more enhancements sought, particularly if there are guilty verdicts in the more complex sedition cases. And listen to what they say about the terrorism enhancement in this ABC article. They say that the terrorism enhancement traces its roots back to the 1995 Oklahoma City bombing, after which Congress enacted tougher penalties to deter acts of intimidation or coercion aimed at government or civilian population, and that in the intervening years, terrorism sentences have mostly been applied to defendants with ties to ISIS or al-Qaeda. This is why when I see Biden come out and talk about how they're going to find you wherever you are, if you're threatening this country, if you're a terrorist, and on the same day, we have a story from ABC News that is asking the question, who should be labeled a terrorist in relation to the January 6th sentencing? That's why I wonder who Biden is actually speaking to in that little video message he made earlier today. You know, it's very interesting timing is all for this stuff to be happening on the same day. Okay, next story. Beyonce released a new album over the weekend and got backlash immediately for using an 
ableist slur, the pop star, or Queen Bee, as they like to call her, or the Illuminati goddess, as others see her. She has since apologized and said that the slur will be removed from the track. Now, what did she say? That's an interesting question because there's many websites that you can't actually find what she said because they won't even type it. Like a bunch of sites would not even even type it. The site that did actually say what the word was, CNN was one of them, and that is where I'm looking at the story right now. So during the song, Heated, Beyonce sings this phrase, spazzing on that ass, spaz on that ass. It's quite brilliant lyrically, actually. It's a shame she's going to be changing it. CNN explains that the term spaz is often used to describe freaking out or going crazy. Yeah, no duh, CNN. But that it's derived from the word spastic, which is considered demeaning to people with spastic cerebral palsy. But spastic is in the name of the condition, yet it's considered demeaning. Okay, here we have a situation of the worst possible interpretation of a word being assumed as though anyone on the planet doesn't recognize that the word used in this context, you know, spaz on that ass, isn't being used as a slur towards people with cerebral palsy. What a way to destroy creativity and free speech via self-policing. In improvisational comedy, when you warm up or when you, you do an exercise to kind of free your mind called word association, you actually do it in psychology as well, where one person says a word and then the idea is that you say whatever word comes to mind first without filtering, with the idea being that there is no judgment, that you are in a safe environment, that you are free to be unfiltered because it is that self-censorship that causes people to judge not only others but also, and more importantly, especially when it comes to improv themselves, and self-judgment is the death of creativity. And what a great way to destroy free expression, to destroy creativity, to destroy art, than by doing just this right here, by creating an environment where everyone is afraid to say anything for fear that it could be offensive to someone. Because, in fact, it probably could, if you frame it that way. And people are going to walk around, if they take to this, just with their lips stapled shut, trying not to think anything for fear they'll be having wrong thought all the time. Because if Beyonce, if she recognized that something was offensive and she took it out of her song... I better not say anything because I might say something offensive. The fact is, they don't have to take your First Amendment right away if you're going to let outrage culture and self-censorship silence yourself for them. What a crock. And she is not the first person to do this. Apparently, a couple weeks ago, Lizzo, whoever that is, redid one of her songs after, ha used, after complaints that she used the exact same term that Beyonce used here. I wonder who's doing the complaining here. Is it actual people who are offended by it or just activists? Probably activists, if I had to guess. It wouldn't surprise me if Beyonce played a willing role in this. As her album was highly anticipated, it was going to get a lot of attention, and by making the statement, the slur, so to speak, and then coming out apologizing, saying it was wrong, and then removing it, it lends credibility to this outraged culture. It's okay to offend people. People are going to be offended. If you are going to speak, what is it that Jordan Peterson said? I don't remember the exact way that he phrased it, but it's something like, you know what, here's the clip from Jordan Peterson. You got in trouble for refusing to call trans men and women by their preferred personal pronouns. No, I that's ask. not actually true. I got in trouble because I said I would not follow the compelled speech dictates of the federal and provincial government. I actually never got in trouble for not calling anyone anything. Right. That, that didn't happen. You wouldn't follow the change of law which was designed not to once outlaw it was law. discrimination. No, no. Why that, well, that's your... what they said it was designed to do. Okay, huh. you cited freedom of speech in that. Why should your right to freedom of speech trump a trans person's right not to be offended? Because 
in order to be able to think, you have to risk being offensive. I mean, look at the conversation we're having right now. You know, like you're certainly willing to risk offending me in the pursuit of truth. Why should you have the right to do that? It's been rather uncomfortable. Well, I'm, I'm very glad I put you on the spot. <laughs> well, I'm you very glad that I have well, you get my, my point. You get my point. It's like you're, you're doing what you should do, which is digging a bit to see what the hell's going on. So and that you, is what you should do. But you're exercising you your freedom of speech to certainly risk offending me. And that's fine. I think you, more power to you as far as I'm concerned. So you haven't sat there and... I'm just trying, I'm just trying to work that out. I mean... Ha, gotcha. You have got me. You have got me. I'm trying to work that time. through in my head. Yeah, yeah. It took a while. It took a while. It did, it did, yeah. It took a while. You have voluntarily... You have voluntarily come into the studio and agreed to be questioned. Mm -hmm. A trans person in your class has come to your class and said they want to be called and That's she. never happened. And I would call them she. So you would. So you've kind of changed your tune on that. No. No, no. I said that right from the beginning. What I said at the beginning was that I was not going to cede the linguistic territory to radical leftists, regardless of whether or not it was put in law. That's what I said. That's what free speech is is the fact is that by engaging in free speech, we all could be offended at some point, but that doesn't mean that we, we want to stop other people from speaking. Being offended is part of reality. If we eliminated all terms that offended people on this planet, then we would not be speaking at all. We would all be silent all of the time, which is exactly what the powers that be would want. It's not surprising at all that Beyonce would play a role in a story like this. She can go spaz on that ass for all I care. Next story. This is a quick one. For the New York Post, Joe Rogan, Jeffrey Epstein may have been CIA or Mossad spy. The article goes on to say Joe Rogan thinks that convicted pedophile Jeffrey Epstein may have been an agent of either the CIA or Israel's Mossad, who was part of a plot to collect sensitive information about the rich and powerful. Yeah, no duh. Welcome to the party there, Rogan. Couple years too late. Next story. This comes from Brian Stelter of Reliable Sources, most unreliable source on television or the internet, wherever you watch your Brian Stelter. And in his continued gaslighting of those who watch his program, he brought on Paul Krugerman, the economist, who is talking on the show about the dystopian myths of Red America. And the first myth that he mentions here, I think you'll find quite interesting here he's telling us something that those in, quote, Red America say happened that he says just never happened. One more column I want to ask you about, Paul. I think it was really important you wrote this week about the dystopian myths of Red America, basically describing how, let's take the average Fox News viewer, uh, is, is to what they're told about blue states and about big cities. What are those dystopian yeah. myths? What do people need to know about that? Well, first of all, there's the specific issue of the whole Black Lives Matter uh, demonstrations, which a large part of the country, certainly a lot of the mail I get, people think that, you know, lots of Manhattan was burned to the ground. They think that this was an enormously destructive thing when, in fact, yes, there was some arson and looting, but actually really not very much in, in a country the size of the United States and for demonstrations that size. So they think and that, can I just, can know, I clarify, Paul? That's because whenever we're talking about the January 6 hearings, the likes of Sean Hannity always say, well, why aren't you investigating the summer of 2020 riots? That's what they say basically every that's day. Right. Yeah, and yeah, and you're you're in Manhattan, right? I mean, you you know that there 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 is not a burned out shell. It just this just never happened. But they're told. No, that I mean, it did. My, look, my, there were windows shattered in my building, and it was awful. And we cleaned it up the next day, and that's what people do. Sorry, yeah. I digress. Go ahead. 
It just didn't happen. This is your classic Snopes-like fact check right here that he's going with. No one thinks that New York City is a burnt-out shell right now. No one is claiming that. What people do think is that businesses across America, like Target, were ransacked, had stuff stolen from them. And that small businesses across America were burnt down, their owners beaten over the head by two-by-fours trying to defend them. In fact, just a week and a half ago, the looter from St. Louis who killed retired police officer David Dorn while he was defending a friend's pawn shop was convicted of first-degree robbery, first-degree burglary, unlawful possession, of a firearm and murdering David Dorn. His sentencing is not until September and he's facing life in prison without parole. Yeah, it never happened. That trial concluded just a week ago and here we have these clowns on CNN telling America that the Black Lives Matter protest rioting stuff, it just didn't happen. It's just something that Sean Hannity says when he doesn't want to talk about the January 6th quote riots as well. What a joke. Okay, Stelter also had a woman on his show named Jennifer Dresden from a group called Protect Democracy. She's the author of what is called the Authoritarian Playbook. I believe there's many things called that, but this is their particular version of this. And she describes to Stelter how this playbook is used to erode democracy, not just in America, but around the world. And I'm going to play some of their conversation for you. Jennifer, can you help us connect the dots or or tell us whether they do connect between uh, Stop the Steal movement organizers, GOP politicians denying election results and actual authoritarianism. Yeah, they are absolutely connected. Um, So when we think about how authoritarianism comes to be, how democracy collapses, we might be tempted to think about big, dramatic, sort of headline-grabbing moments like a military coup, tanks in the streets. Um, But these days, that's really not how it happens anymore. Instead, democracy collapses and authoritarianism takes over by eroding democracy, drip by drip, through what some people call salami tactics. Salami tactics, meaning one slice at a time? One slice at a time. Salami tactics, this according to Wikipedia, is a divide-and-conquer process of threats and alliances used to overcome opposition. With it, an aggressor can influence and eventually dominate a landscape, typically politically, in piecemeal fashion. Opposition is eliminated slice by slice until its members realize, usually too late, that it has been virtually neutralized in its entirety. In some cases, the tactics include the creation of several factions within an opposing political party, followed by its dismantling from the inside without giving the affected parties the opportunity to protest or react. Salami tactics are most likely to succeed when its perpetrators keep their true long-term motives hidden and maintain a posture of cooperativeness and helpfulness while engaged in gradual subversion. While I believe that can be applied to a number of factions that we see operating in America today, I will let their conversation continue. Um, and what, when you look at what the experts say about this, there are seven different tactics in what we call the playbook um, that really are interconnected and that build on one another. They don't happen in isolation. So if you politicize independent institutions, for example, if you politicize election administration, um, then that allows you to do things like corrupt elections, which then leads to a decline in confidence in democracy, for example, mm. that leads to this process of authoritarian takeover, but that is hard to cover for the media precisely because it is so piecemeal. Mm. She says that there as though it's the right that's only the ones that's guilty of doing that stuff, the politicizing institutions and making people question elections, as though nothing happened in 2016 to do that either. I will let the clip continue. Uh, Your group is steadfastly nonpartisan. But how would you describe what you see in the U.S. right now versus other countries? Where is the United States in that um, salami effect? 
Yeah. So this is, as you point out, this is something that happens around the world. We've seen it in lots of different countries. And what the data is suggesting is that the United States is not as far down that path as some countries are, um, but that we are on that path. There have been a number of things that have been happening so that all the big groups that um, provide data on the quality of democracy, for example. We've seen a big downturn in the last five to 10 years in the United States around things like press freedom around things like concerns about our institutions. Um, so we are we are on that path, although we're not as far along that path as some other countries. Without drawing a false equivalence, are there versions of this you see from Democrats or is the anti-democratic behavior in the U.S. concentrated among Republicans? You know, the standards that we lay out in the playbook are ones that we think are nonpartisan, that they are based on what the experts say about these things. Um, so it, these standards apply equally to everyone. Um, when you look at what researchers say, there are certain areas where it suggests that the Republican Party has um, been acting in ways that have moved it further than the Democratic Party has moved. Um, so, for example, if you look at ideological extremism and put it in global context, the GOP has moved further to the extreme than the Democratic Party has in that global comparison. And that would be one way of um, of showing that. OK, first of all, I'd be happy if I never had to hear Brian Stelter say salami effect ever again in my life. And was there any surprise what her answer was going to be to that final question there? She has to actually put it in global context. She does a lot of extracting there to try to, you know, bend over backwards to say, yes, Republicans have. Which says there has been some stuff that says that maybe some areas that the right wing is going a little bit further if we compare it in a global context. And she didn't say it with all that much confidence there. So what I'm going to do in the DMBXR is I'm going to go through those seven tactics of the so-called authoritarian playbook, as she named it. And we'll see what those tactics are, and we'll talk about them a little bit in the DMBXR. And before that, for the final clip of the day, or the final story of the day, which is going to be related to this, and it is going to be a clip from David Frome, where he, you know what, I'm not going to spoil it for you. I'm going to let you hear it yourself here in a moment. But if you want to get access to that DMB XR, that exclusive content, then you can go to patreon.com slash propaganda report and subscribe there today. And you will get access to that content where we're going to be talking about those seven tactics in the authoritarian playbook. But before we do that, I'm going to let you hear what David Frome, a former George W. Bush speechwriter, has to say about covering the right and the left. David Frum has the advantage of looking at this from a little bit further north up in Canada. That's where you are, at least at the moment, David. What do you see about this authoritarian drift in the U.S.? Well, it does create a tremendous challenge for the media, especially media that work the way American media do in the Mm. context of a two-party system. If you're reporting from Germany, where there are multi-parties, and you have the Christian Democrats and the Social Democrats, center-right, center-left, and then you have a third party, like the the, the alternative for Germany that's authoritarian, that um, uh, supports Putin, that takes takes various forms of financial assistance, In in that context, it's pretty easy to say, look, this one party among many is tainted with authoritarian tendencies. But in a two-party system, and especially with media who are used to looking on the one hand on the other, you know, where, where every platform has to be balanced, people ask about this show. You know, do you have any Trump supporters there? Well, no, because if you're trying to analyze the harm done being done to American democracy by um, a, an attempted overthrow of an election on January 6th, you don't have pro-overthrow the election people on to analyze the phenomenon. Maybe you want to let them 
I don't know why, but you would, but you might. The case for overthrowing democratic elections, that, that might be something to study. But if you're analyzing it, um, you there isn't a place to stand. And so you have this problem when you cover American politics that because one party is not wholly but so deeply embedded with the problem, it's hard for people who are used to turning one hand A, now Mr. B, now Ms. A, uh, back to you, uh, to explain a problem where the problem isn't embedded in the presentation. Hmm. Notice how he calls Trump supporters pro-overthrow the election people. Really an interesting thing he did there. First of all, he associates all Trump supporters with the Trump supporters that were at the Capitol on January 6th. There's no difference in any of them, according to him. And secondly, anybody who was at the Capitol on January 6th, they're pro-overthrow the election, according to this guy. What an ass clown. How many people who were at the Capitol on January 6th, if you ask them, how many of them would say that they were there to overthrow the election or that they are pro-overthrow the election people? None of them would say that. Very few, if any. What they would probably say is that they are pro-election integrity and fair elections people and that they believe the 2020 election wasn't fair and they want actual investigations done into the elections, not just cases thrown out over process stuff. This is a very dishonest person here, this David Frum, a former George W. guy trying to stay relevant by labeling anyone pro-Trump as pro-overthrow-the-election people and people who shouldn't be included in the conversation. To him, wanting to investigate the election is no different than wanting to overthrow the election. And he thinks people are stupid enough to buy that. And maybe some are, but not as many as they try and make us think are on television. The progressives I know, and I do know a lot of them, even they don't buy logic this week. Perhaps this is Frome's weak attempt at using a salami tactic to try and subvert democracy. We'll find out in the XR. Thank you guys for listening. You can access the XR content by going to patreon.com slash propaganda report. We'll talk to you next time. Have a fantastic rest of your day.